what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? What's your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Jackamose? Thin, thin Mints, I know it's huge in our family. Say again? Samoas? Anyone else? Tagalongs, yes. I've heard, I've heard Tagalongs. Uh, for, for over 30 years, Elizabeth Brinton, sometimes referred to as the Cookie Queen, held the record for selling the most Girl Scout cookies. And Brinton, she joined her local troop in 1978 and first established herself as a record holder when she won a local Washington, D.C. contest by selling 11,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies in 1985. She went on to sell a record 18,000 boxes in one season and has sold over 100,000 boxes during her time as a Girl Scout. To this day, she is considered the greatest Girl Scout cookie salesperson ever. When she was 13, she was interviewed about her amazing feat, and the interviewer wanted to know how she sold so many boxes. What, what was her secret? And you know what she said in the interviewer when, when asked, what's your secret? What's the key to selling all these boxes of Girl Scout cookies? This is what she replied. She said to the interviewer, look, you have to look them straight in the eye and make them feel guilty. <laughs> you know, part of what makes this so funny is this little girl's very astute observation that guilt is a powerful motivator. I mean, at only 13 years old, she recognized the power of guilt, and she used that power to her advantage. And truthfully, guilt is a powerful motivator, is it not? People often make changes, significant changes in their life due to guilt, don't they? I mean, how, how many moms have resolved to take more pictures and photographs of their child or their children because they feel guilty that they haven't captured enough moments on film? Or how many dads have resolved to spend more time with their wife and their kids because they feel guilty that they've been negligent in the past? I mean, how many people are going to join gyms this January because they feel guilty that they haven't worked out enough, right? Or how many Christians have resolved to pray more and read their Bibles because they feel guilty that they've neglected this in the past? Is that true of you? Is there some aspect of your everyday life or even more importantly, your spiritual life that you have at one point resolved to change because of guilt? Guilt can be a powerful motivator, can it? Yet, 
the reality is guilt can only take us so far. As powerful as it is, like an alkaline battery, it soon runs out of energy. It isn't enough to power a person for true, lasting change. Several months ago, we began a new series through the New Testament book of Ephesians. And something that the Bible makes very clear, and we're going to see this in the weeks to come, is that Christians have been saved unto good works. That is, we are not saved by our good works. No, we are saved to do good works. As Paul makes very clear in Ephesians 2.10, in Christ, we've actually been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, for many Christians, this is not new information. They know they are to do good works. They know they've been created in Christ Jesus to walk in them, as Paul states in verse 10. However, many Christians struggle to do so. And perhaps that's you this morning. You, you know you are to walk in obedience to God's good, good commands. Yet oftentimes in the moment, you choose to resort to live for yourself, your wants, your wishes, your desires, rather than in the moment to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me ask you, when you look back on this past week, when you retrace your steps, what do you see? Are your shoes clean from walking in paths of righteousness and obedience? Or are they dirty from stomping in the mud of sin. I mean, how did you respond when your spouse or your child sinned against you? How did you respond when they disappointed you? How about this? How were you with your time and money? Were you generous or greedy? How did you respond to the news of the success of a friend? Did you celebrate with them? Or were you envious of them? Christian, you've been created in Christ Jesus. You've been saved, created in Christ Jesus to walk, that is to live in good works, to do good works. Are you fulfilling that purpose? Here's the question I want us to consider this morning. As believers, we know we should walk in good works. But here's the question. But how? How can we faithfully do this? What, what can energize us, energize you, empower you and me to do what God has created you to do in Christ Jesus? Better stated... What truth do you need to tell yourself 
in order to obey God's good commands, even when they are hard? Well, I believe the answer is found in our text this morning. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. That's page 976 in that paperback Bible. This morning we're once again going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Last week we focused on the first three verses. Today we're going to give attention to verses 4 through 7, and then next week we're going to pull it all together by looking at verses 8 through 10. But for now, to get the flow of the Apostle Paul's thought, I'm going to start reading again in verse 1 all the way down to verse 7. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why, Paul? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Richard and Larry were invited to spend the weekend with their boss at his beach home in the Hamptons. Yet when Richard and Larry arrived at the house, to their horror, they found their boss dead. Yet before they could call the authorities, guests began to arrive at the party that was planned for that weekend. Well, once everyone arrived, to Richard and Larry's amazement, the guests were too busy partying to notice that the owner of the house, Richard and Larry's boss, was dead. So this sparked an idea in Larry's mind. He proposed that he and Richard maintain the illusion that their boss was still alive so as not to waste the weekend. And that's exactly what they did. 
can anyone tell me the name of their boss? Bernie. Bernie. <laughs> and tell me, this is the plot of what movie? Yes, the 1989 film Weekend and Bernie. As, as the rest of the movie depicts, Richard and Larry spend the rest of the weekend working hard to give the appearance that Bernie is alive. Now, I've, I've never seen the movie, nor am I recommending the movie. <laughs> I simply bring it to your attention for this reason. As the premise of that movie powerfully illustrates, with Richard and Larry trying to prop Bernie up to make him look alive, as the premise of that movie so powerfully illustrates, dead men literally can do nothing. They cannot talk. They cannot walk. They cannot move. They cannot initiate a conversation nor can they see, hear, feel, or taste. They are completely helpless in their dead state. And notice, that is exactly Paul's point about who we, who were once apart from Christ. Tell me, what does Paul say there in verse 1? He says that we were once what? Dead. We, like Bernie, were lifeless and unable to do anything or, please hear me, respond to anyone. Apart from Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, Paul's burden, you'll recall, in the first three verses is for us to remember as Christians our former deadness and to feel the weight of our former chains. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is all about who we once were apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul, love Paul, ever being the preacher's friend, he practically alliterates his points for us because... Notice the next thing Paul highlights in this text about our condition apart from Christ, and that is it, we were disobedient. Do you see that there in verse 2? As sons of disobedience, sin was our master. We talked about this last week, like our relationship to sin was like a dog to its owner. We loved it. Right? It's not like sin was our master, the evil step, stepmother and Cinderella, and we're trying to get away from it. No, like a dog with its owner. We loved our sin. It was our master, and we loved it. As, as Paul writes there in verse 2, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The picture here is not one of freedom, but enslavement. Not only that, apart from Christ, you're also ruled by the prince and the power of the air, who is Satan. However, it's not simply that apart from Christ you were ruled by Satan. No, as the rest of the New Testament makes clear, Satan was your father. Right? We see this taught in 1 John 3.10. Jesus himself teaches this in John 8.44. 
apart from Christ, friend, please hear me, apart from Christ, we were children of the devil. And just like me with my kids, when we're out and about and we're at a restaurant and something disturbing or evil or wicked shows up on the TV and I tell my kids to look away or I actually cover their eyes so they cannot see this evil thing, so too Satan is actively covering the eyes of his children. But he's not covering their eyes to see something bad. No, as Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan, the, the, the God or the prince of this age, he's covering the eyes of his children so they will not see and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet perhaps worst of all, apart from Christ, you were doomed. Your disobedience earned you God's judgment in hell. You're a child of wrath. I don't know if you've noticed, but Halloween decorations are starting to show up. Actually, Ray, Ray sent me a picture of some Halloween decorations in his, in his neighborhood, right? Skeletons, graveyards, darkness. Christian, let these dark decorations remind you of your former condition. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, what you need to understand is this is not a description of your past, but actually this is a portrait of your present. Apart from Christ... Every person is dead, disobedient, and doomed for the judgment of God's wrath. However, the book of Ephesians doesn't end in verse 3. Amen? On the heels of them, this grim picture, look again at what Paul writes in verses 4 through 5. He says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. John Stott calls that phrase, but God, the two greatest syllables ever spoken in the English language. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote that these two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel, and it's not hard to see why. It is because of God and God alone that we have been rescued from our helpless condition. As several commentators have correctly stated, verses 4 and 5 form the thesis statement of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And we could summarize the thesis statement in this way, and that is, God made you spiritually alive in Christ. This, I want to argue, is the main point of this section. God did it. You were dead. You were disobedient. You were doomed. But God, being rich in mercy, 
made you alive in Christ Jesus. As commentator Ian Dugan has written, he says, although this paragraph, verses 1 through 10, is grammatically complex, the main thought is clear. God made us alive. And what you need to understand, friend, is that God's saving work is not like Larry and Richard in the movie Weekend at Bernie's. It's not like God kind of props us up to kind of help us go along. No, he literally resurrects us. He makes us alive and new. Please hear me. Through God's saving work, we are not better versions of ourselves. No, we are new creations, all by God's sovereign work. So let's go back to this question that we started with. How, how are we going to be able to walk in good works? What truth do we need to be telling ourselves to empower us to do the good works we've been created in Christ Jesus to accomplish? Friend, I want to argue this is the answer. It's because God did something. God made you alive spiritually in Jesus Christ. This is what we need to be telling ourselves. Because look, Christian, all throughout your day, in each and every moment, you are constantly making value judgments. You are and I am. In the moment, when, when I have the opportunity to live for myself or to live for Jesus and walk in his ways, I'm assessing what is more worthy of my allegiance. Is it my wants, wishes, and desires? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? For example... When my spouse disappoints me time and time again and I want to leave my marriage or when my child interrupts me and I want to lash out in anger or when I get my paycheck and I want to spend it all on myself rather than giving to the Lord, in those very moments, I'm making a value judgment. And here's the conversation that's happening in my heart. It's this. Who is more worthy of my allegiance? Who is more worthy of my obedience? My wants or God? Faith, in the text I just read, Paul is masterfully demonstrating why God and God alone is worthy of your full devotion and complete allegiance. And why is he worthy? Because he made you alive. I mean, what more could he do to demonstrate and to prove that he and he alone is worthy of your complete devotion and allegiance? I mean, just consider what we learn about God in verse 4. Have your eyes fall there once again. Notice, in this verse, Paul articulates what, I mean, what motivated God to save us. Notice what he says. It was because of what? His great love with which he loved us. 
Christian, praise the Lord. God loves sinners. He loves dead, disobedient, doomed to hell sinners like you and like me. It was because of his great love. Not because we were lovely. That as the rest of Ephesians tells us, that God predestined and called us and made us alive together in Jesus Christ. Faith, as Weekend at Bernie's illustrates, dead men are notoriously bad initiators. Dead men don't seek God. Dead men don't want God. Like Bernie, they cannot do anything. Indeed, as we just read, in our dead condition, we actually hate God. Yet he saved us. He made us alive. Unless we have any doubt that this is all God's doing, look at what Paul says at the end of verse 5. What does he insert there? I mean, he, he's really, he's making an airtight argument. Because what he says, we've been made alive. And he says, by grace, you've been saved. Some people think that Paul was getting ahead of himself because what he's going to say down in verses 8 through 10, I don't think so. I think he's intentionally inserting this just so we get the point. I love what Steve Baugh says about this phrase that we've been saved by grace. In his excellent commentary on Ephesians, Paul writes this. He says, It's common for one to hear that grace is God's unmerited favor. But this and other passages in Paul clearly show that grace is better understood as God's favor lavished on those who deserve his wrath. Amen. The only thing God owes us is eternal damnation and hell for our sin. But that's not what he's given us in Christ. Instead, he lavished his love upon us. He made us alive. And what Paul does here in verses 5 through 7 is articulate what it means, what it actually means that God made us alive in Christ. And it's all by grace. Because of God's grace towards you, Christian, there are now three realities that are true of you. And as your pastor... I want to make sure that we as a church truly understand these truths and celebrate them in our hearts and in our lives. And in particular, as we work our way through this passage, I want you to see how Paul underscores our union with Christ. As was mentioned when we were working through chapter 1, all of God's blessings to the believer come through the Christian's union with Christ. As John Murray wrote, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. He's right. So first, I want you to see that by grace, you've first been raised with Christ. Look again at verses 4, 5, and the first part of 6. So he, de he describes in vivid detail 
our condition apart from Jesus Christ, and it's hopeless. We're doomed. We're disobedient. We're dead. And then he says those two great syllables, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Again, and Paul has to underscore our, current, our present condition outside Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is the main point of the section. By grace you have been saved. And now notice, the first thing, and raised us up with him. So first, by grace you've been raised with Christ. On June 9th, 2010, the Chicago Blackhawks, don't, hey, hey, slow, slow your roll. <laughs> There's the Chicago Blackhawks and the Philadelphia Flyers were all tied 3-3 three to three at the end of regulation in Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals. But then with just a little over four minutes into the overtime, Patrick Kane of the Chicago Blackhawks, he picked up the puck along the boards, skated towards the net, and on a very low angle, he shot the puck in between the goaltender's legs. Now let me ask you, when Patrick Kane scored that goal, how do you think the rest of his team responded? How, how do you think the whole city of Chicago responded? What did they do? So they celebrated, right? And you know why? Because with that game-winning goal, the Chicago Blackhawks, they won the Stanley Cup, ending a 49-year championship drought. In fact, Kane's goal was so incredible that the NHL awarded that moment the goal of the decade. You see, although only one man scored, the entire team won. Now, don't, don't push the analogy too far, but in a very similar way, when our representative and king, when our captain, Jesus Christ, died and rose, we died and rose with him. Right? He did the work. You could say he scored the goal, but by our union with him, our resurrection, his resurrection, rather, is ours. We've been raised with him, as Paul states here. This means that in our representative king, we've already been accepted into heaven when Jesus was raised. And since heaven is now our present dwelling... We have the assurance that it will be our future destination. Isn't that good news? And this is what I want you to understand and see. Because you've been raised with Christ, because his resurrection is our resurrection, because you've been raised with Christ, because you're now spiritually alive, this also means that you are now dead to something. And you know what that it is that you are dead to? Sin. Christian, by your union with Christ, 
since you've been raised with him, you are now dead, please hear me, to sin's power. Sin no longer is your master. No longer are you enslaved to it. And on the street level, you know what this means? Very simply, it means this. You do not have to sin. You've been raised to new life. Now, now, I say that, and judging by the expressions on your face, I don't know, you believe me. Think of what Paul articulated at the end of chapter 1 in his prayer. He wants us to know the immeasurable power and greatness of God demonstrated and clearly seen through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That power, that, that incredible work that Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection, Christian, by your union with Christ, that has freed you from sin's power over you. Do you believe it? I once counseled a Christian man who was addicted to viewing uh, inappropriate things. We'll say that. And as we began to meet, it became very clear that a major contribution to his struggle was a deficient understanding of his union with Christ. He didn't know and understand what it meant that he had been raised with Christ. Now, to be sure, there were other biblical truths and practices that he needed to employ. Yet a foundational truth that he failed to understand was that by his union with Christ, he had been raised with Christ. Sin's power had been crucified and put to death. Christian, do you believe this? You want to be zealous for good works? You want to be faithful in walking in them? Remember, you've been raised with Christ. But then secondly, notice what Paul says, by grace you've also been seated with Christ. Look at the second half of verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You've been raised with Christ and now you're seated with Christ. And I want you to think for a moment where Paul has told us Christ is seated. Now, for, uh, for my son Daniel's 13th birthday, I took him up to Indianapolis for a father-son weekend. I did this for all, all the kids when they turned 13. For the boys, we have a special father-son time. And we had a great time. And one of the highlights was that we got to go to the Colts-Chiefs game. However, I must tell you that our seats at the game weren't that great. Uh, in fact, you know, for those of you that buy tickets, you can go like on SeatGeek or something, and it can show you the view of the seats you're going to buy. Okay? Well, I bought the seats. They didn't reveal, though, that when we got the seats, a railing would be obstructing part of our our view, right? But nonetheless, hey, we're in the stadium. We're there to watch the game. 
Well, towards the end of the first quarter, as a surprise, my dad came up to our seats. However, he didn't come up to our seats just to say hi. No, he came to take us to his company box seats on the 50-yard line. And I have to tell you, the suite was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I've never experienced a football game that way. The seats, the view, the atmosphere, the food. I mean, it was just incredible. Paul in this verse states that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now again, consider what we've learned about Jesus thus far in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, Paul praised God for exalting and seating Jesus above, listen to me, all powers and forces. Remember this in verses 20 through 21? Far greater than any box suite, Jesus Christ is seated in a position of authority over all. And get this. Just a few verses later, Paul now writes that we are currently seated with Jesus. Like my dad in the box suite, we are seated where Jesus is. And you know what this means, friend? You know what this means, Christian? It means by our union with Christ, we have a position of superiority and authority over the evil powers. Now, to be sure, it does not mean that we are divine. There's only one on the throne. But if we're to understand what Paul is saying here in the context of what he's just written in chapter 1, then when Paul articulates that we are now seated with Christ, we've been raised and seated with him, it means in some sense that we have power to overcome. As I was reflecting upon it this week, think about it like this. On the cross, Jesus died in your place so he could seat you with him at his place. And as we're about to see this this truth about us being seated with Christ and where Christ is seated in the heavenlies, it has tremendous implications when it comes to spiritual warfare. One of them being that we can say no to temptation and the attacks of the evil one. Because of this truth, the Christian cannot say, the devil made me do it. Why? Because you are seated with Christ in a position of authority over the devil and evil forces. What good news? But it gets better. Because look at what Paul writes in verse 7. In this verse, we read why God decided to unite us to Christ, to raise us with Christ, and to seat us with Christ. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, so that. So here's here's the the purpose clause. He's, 
He's made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us. He's seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. Verse 7, why? So that in the coming ages, so for all time to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Christian, you know why God made us spiritually alive in Christ? So he could shower us with blessings for all eternity. How remarkable. Indeed, this is even more astonishing when seen in light of our previous condition as sinners who were destined for and deserving of God's wrath in verses 1 through 3. Christian, be encouraged. The purpose of God's great plan to bring everything together under Christ for the church is now revealed. His plan (laughs) His plan is to forever pour out a torrent of kindness on us in heaven and demonstrate forever in the spiritual dimension the wisdom of his grace revealed in the cross. Every day we shall be flooded with fresh blessings of his grace to explore and to prompt us to praise our Savior. I take the so that in verse 7 very seriously. Do you? He raised us. He seated us. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Praise him. Can I ask... Why would you not give your full allegiance to this God? Why would you not live for him rather than yourself? Christian, there awaits for you an eternity of God's blessing for us who are so undeserving and unworthy of it. In light of this, what a small cost it is to bless those who persecute us. What a small price it is to show the love of Christ to those who sin against you. What a small thing it is in light of this to forgive your spouse 70 times 7, to continue to be kind, to continue to be patient, and to not give up on them. What a small thing it is in light of this to bear patiently with your children, to bear patiently with your adult aging parents. What a small thing it is to count others as more significant than yourself. Elizabeth Brinton got people to buy Girl Scout cookies through guilt. Perhaps you even bought some Girl Scout cookies because you felt guilty. (laughs) But Christian, hear the good news. On the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty for your sin and guilt. 
And God gives us something far greater and satisfying and powerful to sustain us and to empower us to live for him other than guilt. He gives us good news. The good news we see here that in Christ we've been made alive. We've been raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ. And we will be blessed eternally by Christ. When you understand that, how can you not want to live for him? Let's pray.